Welcome to Rethinking Trade with Lori Wallach, a podcast that unpacks international trade and how it affects you without putting you to sleep. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Rethinking Trade with Lori Wallach. I'm Lori, and today I'm excited to welcome two friends who have been closely following the way that big tech platforms' ability to trash our privacy and trade in our personal data has been constrained. And the big tech platforms' monopoly abuses against smaller businesses and consumers are being countered. And new AI regulation that will just simply forbid the use of AI in sensitive sectors where our civil rights and civil liberties could be undermined. Wait, you're saying, I didn't see that in the news. Well, my friends, that's the news from Europe. And today we have two folks who have been following what's going on in Europe as far as privacy protections, monopoly protections, and generally trying to get big tech on a leash so that we get the benefits of the technology and are able to maintain our privacy and our civil rights, civil liberties, jobs, and futures. So today, very glad to introduce Callie Schroeder. She is with a group called EPIC, which is the Electronic Privacy Information Center. She's the Senior Counsel and Global Privacy Counsel at EPIC. She also has worked with the International Association of Privacy Professionals. She is also the Transatlantic Consumer Dialogues U.S. Chair of the Digital Committee. We are also really lucky to have with us Jesse Larrick. He is a co-founder of Accountable Tech. And the name of the group lets you know what they do. They're fighting to keep big tech platforms accountable. Jesse's the American who probably most closely has followed and been part of the passage of a couple of really important bills we're going to be talking about. Jesse's been working on these issues for many years. He's worked in foreign policy before. He's worked in election campaigns. He's worked in communications. But just as an alert, we're going to start out with Callie. Callie, tell us just a little overview about how different it is in the EU relative to here with respect to our privacy rights online. What is the European system? What are the things it protects? Sure. So we've been actively tracking what's been going on in the EU because frankly, the EU has been a real leader globally when it comes to privacy regulations. And this started years and years ago, but has has been hugely impactful globally through the passage of the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation. Okay, GDPR, folks, General Data Protection. What does that mean? So that established a whole bunch of privacy rights for individuals uh, in the EU. There's rights to correct data, delete data, make sure that companies are using it correctly, access what they hold on you, all of that. Uh, There's strict requirements about how a company can uh, collect information or how they can use it. They have to declare that up front. They can't just collect it and then come up with a reason why afterwards. There's restrictions about data transfer. There's so many aspects of the GDPR um, that have been hugely influential globally. Uh, There's also been uh, impacts like Brazil adopted essentially its own version of the GDPR. There's a whole bunch of other countries that have adopted parts of it. Um, And so the EU has been incredibly influential in privacy for a long time. And now they've been passing this whole raft of other regulations that have to do with privacy that Jesse will definitely go into more detail on. But it includes the DMA and DSA. It also includes the Data Governance Act, the Data Act, and the AI Act, which two of those have not passed yet. So we'll see on that. 
I think part of why they're so active is because they really deliberately wanted to establish themselves as leaders in privacy globally. And they wanted to kind of set the tone and set the bar for what is and isn't acceptable when it comes to using people's personal data. I I think that they've just got the jump on us because we are moving so slowly. We are uh, shamefully one of the major countries that does not have a federal privacy law. And that sets us very behind in these conversations. It's very difficult to come to the table as a country and try to tell people how they should adapt their proposed privacy laws when we don't have a baseline law. It's kind of, let me tell you what you should do, but I'm not following my own advice. And, and so I think that's some of the distinctions we've seen here is the EU has been very active and been having very active discussions on privacy for a long time. And while we've been discussing it, and while privacy surprisingly tends to be a pretty bipartisan issue in the US, we just haven't gotten forward motion on it yet. So here we are in the US, we don't have the privacy protections. In Europe, there really was an effort to protect consumers, citizens' rights. And now, Jesse, can you let us know about all these other acronyms that have gotten floated up? And again, folks, Digital Markets Act, DMA, Digital Services Act. And these are not so, so new, but they're certainly causing a stir. Jesse, what what do we need to know? Yeah. So as you said, they've been hard at work over there in Brussels. They passed last year after the long sort of deliberative process that exists uh, in in the EU made its way all the way through. They passed a a pair of bills, the Digital Markets Act, the DMA, and the Digital Services Act, the DSA. And taken together, I think it's really the most comprehensive um, regulatory regime that big tech has ever been subject to. Basically, the DMA is the sort of competition piece of the package. And it really looks a lot like some of the antitrust bills that were moving through Congress last year before they were ground to a halt. And the Digital Services Act deals more with um, content and risk mitigation uh, for the largest platforms in particular. So taken together, again, there's just a lot of new requirements, obligations, and responsibilities that these platforms are going to have to play ball with for the first time. So what are some of the specific requirements and what, you know, what, what do you mean by risk mitigation? Let's start with the DSA. What does that mean practically for the companies and for us as users of technology? DSA, I think it takes a really interesting approach to, to tackling these really tricky sort of content issues that we struggle with here. I think people rightfully in some cases, but are, are particularly worried about heavy handed regulation in Europe that might run afoul of the First Amendment and some of the free speech principles we hold so dear here in the U.S. But the DSA doesn't really do that. Instead, it takes this risk-based approach. So rather than saying you can't say X and you can't say Y and you can't say Z, what it basically says is here's a set of broad principles that platforms have to abide by. And here's a bunch of top line goals we want to drive toward. You have a responsibility to sort of systemically address the risks of the products and tools that you produce, which makes total sense to me. And so it's not such that nobody on your platform can say this. And if they do, you must take it down. Instead, it says it requires platforms to conduct systemic risk assessments on things like 
how their products are impacting mental health, impact on the political tenor and all sorts of systemic risks that arise from these platforms. And it requires platforms to conduct these assessments with independent audits and then prove that they're doing things to mitigate risks. It's a bit complex. It's definitely going to be a challenge for the enforcement agencies over there and whatnot. Again, this is kind of like a first of its kind experiment, but I do think it's a pretty clever way to try to tackle some of these harmful but not unlawful type speech issues that we've been dealing with here in the U.S. as well. And just to put a pin in that for folks in the U.S., just basically right now the companies get to decide what will and will not be available to our kids what will or will not be flying around the internet as far as stuff that is not accurate, is hateful. And the approach here is instead of saying, you can't say X, but then you can't ever guess all the X's, the Y's and Z's, plus your X could be my free speech. (laughs) Then instead the approach here is to basically say, companies, we're giving you a requirement as a matter of law, not to do harm. And here are some things that are harms. And you guys have a legal obligation to be on top of your product all the time to make sure that you are modifying it and keeping on top of this. It's not wild, wild west. So the DMA, how about that one? And antitrust means anti-monopoly. It's just the technical U.S. legal word for anti-monopoly. So, you know, if you think of these gigantuan platforms like Amazon and Google and Facebook, Those guys have the ability, because they're so ginormous, to basically just call the shots for other companies. Oh, you big company like Match.com, you want to do business on this platform? Take this or go to hell. And similarly, obviously, consumers get abused a lot. So the DMA. I'll get into the DMA in a second, but a couple more things I should add quickly about the DSA, because there are other pieces to it in addition to the uh, risk mitigation. So it also includes like mandatory access to data for researchers and civil society, which we've been fighting for over here. It includes mandates for algorithmic transparency so that we can finally open up the black box on the engines that drive what people see on these platforms. It has new limitations like banning targeted advertising to minors or targeted advertising using sensitive data. And so all of those pieces of it, I think, are also important. And and the last thing I should say is that they did a good job. They have tiered obligations so that the largest platforms, you know, TikTok and Facebook and all of those guys are subject to all of these requirements, but the smaller players don't have as many compliance hoops, which makes sense and gives them a opportunity to try to grow into a larger company. So that's the DSA. The DMA is the counterpart that, as you said, tackles antitrust competition. It's really aimed at what they've termed as gatekeepers. So the largest digital companies, I think they have to have $7.5 billion in annual revenue or $75 billion in market cap in Europe and have 10,000 business users or 45 million end users. So the DMA is really specifically aimed at some of the largest digital companies in the world that really act as gatekeepers in various digital marketplaces, your Amazons, your Metas, your Booking.com might eventually be swept up in there and Alibaba. And then it institutes a set of do's and don'ts about what these marketplace gatekeepers must do and what they are not allowed to do. And so 
they're banned from giving preferential treatment to their own products, you know, self-preferencing as, as it's called, restricting business users from offering customers better deals, unfairly bundling their product across business lines, pre-installing their apps on uh, and software on, on users' devices. So those are the kinds of things that they are no longer going to be able to do. And with both the DSA and the DMA, violating these laws is going to come with massive fine, 6 to 10% of annual turnover. So these are, for so long, these companies have gotten by with just breaking the rules repeatedly, knowing that all they're going to get is a slap on the wrist that doesn't even register given the massive amount of money they bring in here. And this has really shift that dynamic in a significant way. Just to be clear, annual turnover means the money they make. So if they're huge and they make a ton of money, then 10% of that in a fine or 6% of that in a fine, it's going to be, boy, we better not do it this way in the future. So this is a very different dynamic than the way that the big tech folks have gotten away with basically no oversight. Before we get a little bit more into the implications and the what comes next, Callie, I'm wondering just practically so we can bring it down to what it means. If you're in the European Union and you are under these privacy protections, what would we experience just that would be different that show us that we have these privacy protections? What are rights that we just don't have here that you would have there? How would it actually affect me? I get on a website. Sure. So some of the things that you'd notice uh, would have to do with how you're tracked on a website. So if you have like a cookie tracker that's loaded on your browser, you'd see differences in who's allowed to track you, particularly third-party companies, third-party cookies. And those frequently get used to kind of follow people around the internet and see what they're into and build these profiles on them so that they can then do targeted advertising at you. So it builds this whole little ecosystem of information they have on you specifically that they then sell to marketers and let them use to target you. That's structured differently in the EU. It's not to say it never happens, but it happens differently. And there's a lot more consent and a lot more disclosure of that process in the EU. So you'd notice that. You would also notice when it comes to using some of the big tech platforms they have to use things in specific ways. And you may not see as a user, unless you're a person that likes to delve into privacy policies, which if you are, I would love to meet you. I've got so many questions. But if you look into those privacy policies, all of those big tech companies, they have to disclose what they're collecting from you, why they're collecting it, how long they hold it, uh, some basics about the security around it, who they share it with. There's a lot of information that has to be disclosed there. And if they're saying things that aren't accurate or if they're being purposely overly vague about it, like they're not really giving details about it, it's all these generalities, then the EU enforcers can come down on them for it. And they get prompted to come down on them by activists in the EU. So people have heard of Max Schrems. There's also Johnny Ryan. There's a whole bunch of activists that specifically look at what these big tech companies are doing so they can alert authorities and say they're not following the law here. You need to go after them. So that ends up being a lot more empowering for individuals. And if I wanted to like no longer have Meta holding any information on me anymore, I could message them and say, I want you to... to Give me a copy of all of the personal information you have on me, and then I want you to delete all of it. And they have to do that. And that includes from all their servers in the U.S. So it can't just be that they're deleting all the copies they hold in the EU on me. 
anything they have on me anywhere in the world, they have to delete. There are limited exceptions for how they're allowed to hang on to some of that. They're really limited. So when it comes to your individual rights, there's a lot of differences you'd see in the EU as well. And some of these are current and some of them would be affected by the passage of the DMA and the DSA. So you'd also see, based on using these big platforms, you'd see differences in the content that appears to you. You'd see differences in how you report content. You'd see differences in transparency. As Jesse said, they have to reveal how algorithms are used on the site, how preferential data is used on the site, how whether they use algorithms to kind of promote content on main pages. And there's a lot of limitations around dark patterns where they're trying to trick you into clicking on certain things that they really want you to click on by like highlighting that and hiding the the other options. Yeah, there's just a bunch of different changes that we'd see once these go into practice as well. So folks, imagine this. Actually, your rights are being protected. It's not just the big platforms calling all the shots, but they're actually rules that take into consideration us as users and what's good for us. Sounds like a pretty reasonable deal. I'm sure that there are folks, you know, who could say there are even better ways to do these things, but Europe is head and shoulders ahead of us. These companies have their underwear in an enormous bundle trying to not have this become the global pattern. And these companies, basically these mega, mega powerful companies have invested an enormous amount of lobbying money. They have lobbyists and cash sloshing all over different capitals. And in Washington, up until now, they've been able to evade, really, oversight and regulation to the detriment of us, of a lot of competing businesses, perhaps of our very democracy. And so they see right now this enormous clash, these companies. There's a vision that's about rights for human beings, privacy and other rights, on competitive markets that are structured not to have monopolization, on basic notions of how companies in this not so new, but kind of new sphere ought to be operating. That's the European model. And then there has been the US wild, wild west. And so we are now seeing claims by the big digital companies and their lobbying operations that the things that Europe is doing other countries are doing to protect our privacy or to start to regulate AI or to break up online monopolies. They're saying, oh, that's no legal trade barrier because it's a really helpful brand. It's much easier to say this is no legal trade barrier than to say, hi, we want to dominate the world and screw up your lives. So I want to go back a little bit into the experience both of you guys have had personally trying to advocate for both these policies, but also now there's a new thing called the AI Directive. It's not enacted yet. Just as a preview of coming attractions, while we're still trying to figure out what we consider AI around here to regulate, there already are almost finished policy proposals in Europe that would just flat out ban the applications of AI in some super risky things like facial recognition where there are you know, huge problems potentially of convicting the wrong people and in some other sensitive areas. I'd love to hear your experience of what it's been like with, I'm sad to say, mainly these big U.S. companies trying to beat the stuffing out of the European Parliament, the European Commission, trying to bury these laws before they actually become the better model, which they are the better model. How's that been? 
Yeah, it's actually good timing. Our two organizations, along with the AI Now Institute, actually just put out a framework on AI, on regulating AI this morning that we're uh, calling Zero Trust AI Governance. Uh, and there's definitely some overlap uh, with the AI Act that they're working on in the EU. But to your point, Laurie, I think it's really a continuation of what we've seen with the DSA and the DMA, where as the EU gets closer to getting something across the finish line, the companies are coming crying to Washington as they have for so many years, assuming that Washington will do its bidding around the world. And so I don't know that, I wouldn't say the EU Act, the AI Act is perfect per se, like nor are any of these regulations. And I think we'll continue to learn from them and take lessons away and tweak them around the edges to make them stronger. But they're actually regulating, they're passing real things. And with the AI Act, once again, now you're seeing that same dynamic where the companies are really relying on folks at Commerce and throughout the administration, and as well as key members of Congress to make their case uh, and try to like, try to use the uh, important alliance that we have with the EU and to try to kill these regulations that would really restrict their profits. I definitely want to echo everything Jesse said. He's absolutely right in what I've been seeing too. One thing I've noticed a lot in the conversation between big tech when we're talking about EU privacy regulations and US privacy regulations is they seem to take any argument possible and it doesn't matter if they're simultaneously arguing opposite things. So in the US, they have been constantly saying that it's too difficult because we have a patchwork law system. So because there's not a federal privacy law, a lot of individual states have started passing privacy regulations. And big tech companies don't seem super fond of that. They've been arguing that it's too difficult to be tracking the different standards across different states. And we really need just one federal privacy law that would be easier to track and it would be better for people and better for business. And we'd really like a federal privacy law. The quiet part is that they'd like to write it and they'd like it to be not a privacy law. But that's an argument they've made. At the same time, anytime someone proposes, hey, the EU's passed all these privacy laws, why don't we just take what they're doing and apply it here? They argue that those privacy laws are destroying innovation and destroying business and they're targeted at U.S. companies and they're going to destroy everything we've built over here. And we're so dominant in the tech space and this is going to ruin that. And why would we do that? So they they want a privacy law, but they also don't want a privacy law. So they want a privacy law that's not a privacy law. It's very confusing. Another thing that we've noticed a few times is that there's been some talk from big tech companies and sadly echoed in some of the government conversations we've had about the EU laws, where they really seem to take the perspective that the EU is kind of picking on the US and is going after US tech companies. I don't see that as being the case. I do see it as being a thing where the DMA is about antitrust and is going after monopolies. The US has a lot of companies that have really thrived in a monopolistic system. So they're not going after the U.S. specifically, but they are going after monopolies. And the fact that we've built up a system where tech or big tech monopolies are rewarded means that we're going to feel that. I, I, that's just the nature of it. It's also come up in discussion about data transfer agreements. There's the the EU-U.S. data transfer agreement is um, close to being finalized and I'm sure immediately being challenged. It's It's going to be a very interesting situation. 
And again, there's a lot of talk about how well it's unfair that the EU is so picky about data transfers to the US when they have these agreements with other countries. But those discussions constantly talk about essentially lowering the bar for protecting personal data so that we can just transfer data again. And there seems to be very little discussion about how maybe it would be a good idea for us to raise our own bar on how we're protecting personal information. So my experience with a lot of the big tech conversations around EU privacy and data privacy seems to be that they like things to just continue the way that they operate in the U.S. So I guess the way to think about this is it's a little bit like right now with this not so new, but kind of new technology. It's like what industry was saying in 1910 when they were starting to think about regulating for food safety and, you know, the slaughterhouses, they knew the food wasn't sanitary. It wasn't safe. They didn't care if it poisoned people or made them sick. And, you know, we saw also with the tobacco industry and all of the different efforts they made to evade once people realized that tobacco could cause cancer to evade accountability. And so now you have another industry who basically is claiming it's an abuse of one form or another. If there are governments that are trying to make sure we get those benefits without a bunch of harms. So this sort of loops us back to the whole set of issues around digital trade. So that is the brand digital trade that is being used to do the fight that I described of the companies trying to use the trade framework as a way to do the same dang attack that Jesse and Callie have been fighting with their partners and allies in Europe. It's like that's the frontal invasion team is running around just saying, you can't do that. But this backdoor attack is similar. You know, we've talked about the digital trade provisions, mainly in the context of uh, an attempt by the big tech companies to get them shoved into a thing called the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. And that's for 14 Asian countries. But this is a multi-front effort. And so I want to introduce people to a thing called the World Trade Organization's JSI e-commerce. And it's a way to think about is the WTO's digital trade agreement. And the big tech companies have all those same bad rules we've talked about in the context of the Asian trade negotiations. But just to bring it home very concretely, you've just heard about how algorithm transparency is going to be really important. It's in the DSA. It's also in the AI directive. It's also in President Biden's AI Bill of Rights. If you want to avoid self-preferencing, if you want to make sure there isn't racial discrimination online... All of these automated decisions that help decide if you're going to get a loan, if you're going to get housing, if you're going to get a job. So you need transparency. But then what is the digital trade push in the WTO for the whole world? It's to have secrecy, guaranteed secrecy. You can't even mandate that the government be allowed to pre-screen against all of these problems or have a detailed description of the algorithm or absolute control by the companies of data flows and who has the ability to do what with the data. So if there's a requirement that you have to be able to delete wrong data or minimize it, or, you know, as Kelly described, have your privacy protected by having everything gotten rid of your whole record with a few limited exceptions, that requires the companies to have basically the oversight of the government to tell them you can't just do what you want. That would be a violation of the free flows digital trade rule. And then finally, on the issue of anti-monopoly, there are rules that basically 
make what all of these policies rightly do, which is they target the big guys. If you're trying to break up monopolies, you don't look for the tiny companies, you look for the monopolies. The policies apply according to the size and therefore the impact and the risk of monopolization and abuses. And so these rules are being proposed for the Asian agreement, for the WTO, basically would say, even if the law treats everyone the same, and the law says if you have X percent of the market, or if you have X percent of users or a number of users, it doesn't matter if you're domestic or foreign, it applies. Doesn't matter. If it could hit a foreign company more than any domestic company, that's a violation. Well, obviously, that's like anti-anti-monopoly policy. So those are the three key prongs of the digital trade that we've talked about before. But to apply them practically, now that we've all seen a little bit of the future that we could have, as our Congress and our executive branch is trying to get trying to catch up, we can see that in Europe, where a lot of things might feel a lot like they are here, things are very different. And these companies are having to find a way to deal with it in a way that still is profitable for them, sure, but that protects us. So I just want to flag that because I think that as these guys, as Callie and Jesse and, you know, the amazing groups in Europe who've been pushing for this and the parliamentarians there are having more and more success, we're going to hear more and more of this, frankly, BS. They're out to get U.S. companies. This is illegal trade. So both Callie and Jesse... As you're thinking going forward, for folks who are mainly in the listeners of this podcast are mainly in the U.S., what are things you think people ought to keep an eye on and or could be doing to be helpful in trying to fight to get some of these good policies in Europe enacted here? Obviously, we have to keep our eyes on the digital trade sneak attack, but you know that's, that's the backdoor attack. Got to make sure that doesn't happen. How the hell do we get these rights here? Any thoughts? Magic wands? Potions? If I had a magic wand, I would so use it. Uh, I haven't found one yet. It's frustrating that I, the advice constantly has to be to talk to your congressperson or talk to your senator. But seriously, if your representatives know that this is an issue that matters to you, then they can respond a little bit to, they're, they're receiving huge pressure from big tech companies and pressure in the form of money, in the form of lobbying. It's massive if they don't know that their constituents care about this issue, that's an easy win for big tech. Like very easy for representatives to say, well, they're giving me a ton of pressure and a ton of money. And it seems like this isn't a big deal to people. So I'm just going to give them what they want. The only way that you can counter that is by making your voice very loud and making it known that you want uh, protections. You, you think you deserve privacy because you do. And you think you deserve Uh, the same rights that other countries are establishing for their citizens around the world, for their residents. And that can be in the form of calling or emailing your representatives. You can write letters, you can do petitions, you can write articles. Anything that you think is going to get your voice out there, get it out there. One of the weird pros of the bizarre social media landscape we live in is that most representatives have social media accounts start messaging them there. Let them know that this matters to you. If you want on the social media accounts, let them know how much of their own information is being collected by that social media account. (laughs) I mean, anything that you think is going to make an impact, do it. And outside of that, when you have the time and the energy 
please reach out to groups like Epic and like Accountable Tech and like Rethink Trade, because we're trying as hard as we can to make information about what's happening to your information in the tech space accessible to you. So as much as you can, educate yourself on what's going on so that you can continue to push for the rights that you deserve. We will do our best to make sure that information is available to you and that we're following up and we're we're making sure that everything is findable and understandable to people that don't do this for their jobs. But anything you can do to educate yourself and keep letting your friends, your family know what's at stake here, that does make an impact. Thank you very much. Callie Schroeder, again, Senior Counsel at EPIC, the Electronic Privacy Information Center. You can find EPIC at www.epic.org. Thank you, Callie. And Jesse, what is your guidance and what folks ought to pay attention to and what they ought to do? I can't possibly say it better than Callie just did. I I was going to say almost the exact same thing as far as really engaging your members of Congress and representatives and letting them know how important this stuff is to you. I think one of the most dispiriting things that I saw happen over the last few years was that last year, you know, we had a couple of really important antitrust bills on the doorstep. We had the votes. They were bipartisan bills with a ton of support and overwhelmingly popular with the public. And I mean, just to call it what it is, you know, Chuck Schumer just kind of ran out the clock and never put it on the floor. And he felt comfortable doing that because there he didn't think there would be a backlash from the public. And he was more or less right. You know, I mean, I think on the one hand, we've seen a ton of people get more and more interested and excited about this stuff, speaking out louder. We've seen more groups come to the table and, and getting involved in the, in the digital in the tech accountability space. And so all of that stuff has been super exciting. And that's the reason that we've gotten so many things to the doorstep that we hadn't made progress on in, in decades. And at the same time, what we need to do is get over that ledge where lawmakers don't feel comfortable just kind of doing the bidding of big tech and assuming that they won't pay any political price for it. So when that dynamic changes, we're finally going to see these great bills become laws. Very good advice from Jesse Larrick, the co-founder of Accountable Tech. You can find them online at www.accountabletech. Both Callie and Jesse and their organizations have a lot to offer. So check out their websites, including for that new report on AI regulation. And I just, I want to underscore what they both said, which is even if you don't have a specific ask for a specific piece of legislation, it is worthwhile to make sure your elected officials know that you've had it with this wild, wild west of big tech abuse, and you are expecting them to do something about protecting your privacy, busting up these monopolies, dealing with the toxicity online, and literally simply leaving a message saying you're a constituent, be it by social media, by an email, or everyone should have this in a sticky on the refrigerator in the kitchen. It's a phone number for the Capitol switchboard. Get ready to write it down if you don't already have it someplace, because you can call this number, give your zip code, and they will attach you to the right house member. And then from the house member asked to be sent to your senators. It's one phone call. You don't even need to know if the districts have changed around zip code. So ready? 202. 
225-3121. That's 202-225-3121. You don't have to be an expert, though boy, are we lucky we have these two experts with us today. All you need to say is, I expect my congressperson to get big tech on a leash to protect my privacy, to bust up the monopolies. How can the Europeans do it? What's our what's our problem? What are you going to do for this? Write me. I'm a constituent. They put you to voicemail. Just leave your that message, your name, and your address. That will help. Jesse and Kelly are right. We just need to be putting on the pressure because the big tech guys are swarming all over in this epic battle between an EU vision of oversight and regulation of this industry and to date, big tech's ability to crush citizens' efforts to be protected from big tech abuses in the U.S. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I really appreciate you joining us for another episode of Rethinking Trade with Lori Wallach. Until the next time, bye-bye. Bye-bye.